Um, as, as Elliot said, my name's Josh, and um, for those of you I haven't met, hopefully I get an opportunity to later today, but we're continuing on with our series of On Flourishing Life and its theme in John. And I know Elliot's already talked about it this morning, but I really love the number of plants we've managed to get on stage. I love it for a few reasons. Um, for those of you who haven't been here early, one morning over the last few weeks, there's this moment about 30, 40 minutes before the gathering begins where just truckloads of plants suddenly wind their way through the door. Carfuls seem to come through and the stage is transformed in a moment. It's incredible. The second thing, reason I love it is it's starting to remind me a little bit of home. Some of you might have had the same experience as me, but about 18 months ago, I didn't have a conversation with my wife, Tamara, but indoor plants just started appearing. Every weekend there seemed to be a new one, and we're either have an excess of plants or an excess of pots, and the next weekend that needs to be rectified, and it, the balance seems to go back and forth, and we're now at a point where we could nearly run a nursery. But I've really loved it in this series, because there's something about looking at plants that just screams life. I've grown up in church most of my life, and often we do have a cross up here. There's, there's walls that might have a verse printed. And when I think about the reasons we do that, I understand it. It says something about Jesus. It says something about the kingdom. When I think about it, it brings me to life. But I have to think to get there. Looking at plants the last few weeks, it, I don't have to think. I just see life. Life screams at me. And so we're continuing today to talk about what that life looks like. And we're looking at the parable of the good shepherd and his flock that's in John 10. But before we read it, I want to put some context into which Jesus speaks this parable. Because John 9 tells us a lot about the reason Jesus chooses to say the words he does. In John 9, one day Jesus is walking along with his disciples. And they come across this blind man on the corner of the street. And the disciples don't talk to this man, but they turn to Jesus with a theological question. Like everyone in the town, they assumed that this man was blind because of sin. And they asked Jesus whether this man was blind because of his own sin or because of the sin of his parents. And Jesus doesn't really answer much except to say that it's neither, and then he heals the man. And we hear later that people are coming up to this man and asking who it was that healed him. And he reveals that he's not actually sure who it was. And the Pharisees take it upon themselves to investigate. And they realize that it's Jesus. And worse, they realize Jesus performed this miracle on the Sabbath. And so in their anger, they come back to the formerly blind man and they ask him, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replies to them, he is a prophet. The Pharisees are angered and they start to berate him, telling him he should be giving glory to God, not this sinner, because Jesus couldn't, had to be a sinner if he'd healed on the Sabbath. And the man has this incredible reply. He says, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And the Pharisees are further angered again, and they insult him and tell him that they are the authority on what God has to say, not this Jesus guy. And incredibly, this man on the street beats them in a quick debate, and the Pharisees' response is to kick him out of the community. In all this anger, Jesus comes along, and he says, I have come into this world that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. If it could be possible, the Pharisees got even more angry. 
They realized that Jesus was calling them blind. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus finally answers the question that the disciples started with. He said, if you, as he says to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And it's into this moment, into this anger, that Jesus shares the parable of the shepherd and his flock that we'll read now. So if you do have your Bibles or your phones and you want to read along, we'll be reading from John 10, verses 1 through to 10. John 10. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. On first reading, there's a lot going on in this parable. And it's easy to forget that the parable is told in a specific cultural context. I don't have much experience with sheep. I've never met a shepherd. But in this context, the people of the village, many of them would have had their own flock. And what the shepherd would do is he would wander the pastures by day. But it was at night where danger approached. At night when the wildlife might come and attack the sheep. At night when rival shepherds might come steal the flock. And so there'd be this place in the community, a large pen, where as the day wound up, the shepherds would bring their sheep. And once all the sheep had entered the pen for the night from all the shepherds of the town, they'd leave a child from the village at the gate to protect them as everyone went to sleep. David of the Old Testament, this would have been one of his roles. And in the morning, the shepherds would return, but this was before the days of ID tags. There weren't separate pens, all the sheep would have intermingled. And what the shepherd would do is he would call out to the sheep. A lot of them would have a, a flute or a reed instrument, and they would play it, and their sheep would recognize the noise of their shepherd, and they would follow the shepherd out for the day in the pastures. As I was reading a commentary describing this, I got this image of just how relaxing it would have been. Picturing a shepherd with a flute and these rolling pastures and the sheep following it out and... I was, I was just considering how beautiful that would have been, but then I remembered once I had to sit in the back of the car with my younger brother, and he'd just learnt recorder. <laughs> For an hour and a half going around Lobethal, I heard green sleeves. And I can promise you that it's accurate, that I would recognise the sound of that recorder anywhere. But Jesus tells us that the sheep of this story is the blind man that we met in the earlier chapter. 
The sheep represents the everyday person, the people in our community. The sheep is us. And to be confusing, Jesus gives himself two roles. In one verse, he introduces himself as a shepherd. In another, he introduces himself as the gate. And I think part of what's going on here is a reflection on what Andrew shared last week, that Jesus sees himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the gate, the way we enter into life out in the pastures. But he's also the truth, the calling in which we follow. And we're told that the thief or the robber is anyone who makes it more complicated for the sheep to enter the gate. In this case, it is the Pharisees or anyone who claims to have a way to relationship with God except through King Jesus. In the way they live their lives, the Pharisees had just demonstrated that they had caveats on how one could follow God. And this formerly blind man had to follow their specific way of thinking had to keep the Sabbath perfectly. The Pharisees had just told this man that he wasn't enough. They'd made life about ticking certain boxes, living a certain way. Previously, this man had been out on the street because his blindness represented he was a sinner. And when this was miraculously taken away from him, he was kicked out of community once again because it wasn't done in a way that the Pharisees thought was proper. The Pharisees have become about blocking the gate, about making it a narrow way one could walk through. I was trying to think, as I said, that this, this parable doesn't have much modern application to myself. I have, I'm not a shepherd. And I was trying to think of what in my life could be an example of this. And I came to a terrifying experience I had as a kid, one I think many of us has, have had. And it's when you get lost in a supermarket and you can't see your parents anywhere. It's an overwhelming experience. Suddenly, noise from all inputs come in. You look up and down the aisle and can't see anything. There's no safety. And because we spent our life listening to our parents and found comfort in their voice, we can be attuned to that voice among the voices of many. And that voice brings a sense of safety, relief, comfort. It brings us life. Jesus is the parent whose voice we're listening for. And he's telling us that there is a wide open gate for us to walk through into life. And so what are the obstacles in our way? What are the things that, we, that the, uh, narrow the gate, that make the way harder as the Pharisees had made? I think often the barriers come as much from ourselves as it comes from outside sources. About what we tell ourselves about our worthiness that we'll never be good enough, that we can never solve our own problems. Life can quickly become about what we can contribute to our relationship with God. In our own life, I ask you to consider where is it that you narrow the gate through which Jesus has called you? Another thing I think we need to do is examine the gospel that we share. I've been thinking a lot about how people outside the church view us as a wider church, not just Richmond. And it seems to me that, that non-believers, those who aren't of the faith, are interested in what the church has to say in a couple of key areas. One is on the issue of grief around war. 
an Anzac Day every year, Tamara and I go, go to our local roundabout, and thousands gather at a church. Six o'clock in the morning, and teenagers are there, grandparents are there, young and old, sporting clubs. And we stand together, and a bishop runs us through verses and old hymns and things we wouldn't sing at any other time. But in the confusion around war, people are interested in what the church has to say. And around the time of the loss of loved ones and sickness, people often turn to the church, want to know what it is that God has to say in this hurt. I haven't had many non-believers come up to me and ask me to, to tell them what the church has to say about goodness, about morality, except outside of these issues. And I sometimes think these people outside the church have picked up on something that we've missed. That Jesus' primary mission, his primary message is about life. It's about life to the full in the present and life in eternity in relationship with him. The rules and regulations that marked the Pharisees, that often we can be seen as about, they drain us and take away from life. Jesus rarely preached on the things not to do. He instead called people to something, to life, to walking through that gate. And the gospel we share, it needs to be one that is primarily focused on flourishing life and not one that's focused on sin. The passage we read today ends with Jesus giving us a promise. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. It would be easy to read this parable as telling us that, life is a, that participating in life is about avoiding false teachers. That we have to be careful what we meet in our day to day. But I think to simplify it down to this would be to say that the way of life is just to be careful to avoid death. Instead, Jesus tells us what we are to participate in. In verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, When he has bought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. All Jesus asks of us is to listen and follow. And that's why he's so angry at the Pharisees. Because they are leaders who are telling his sheep that there's other things they need to do. They're placing barriers that narrow the gate. An open gate that Jesus is calling them through. I mentioned earlier that over the last 18 months, our house has been flooded by indoor plants. When this first happened, Tamara and I would often be out with friends. And she'd, she'd remark or tell people that indoor plants were the new hobby. I half-jokingly, half-accurately, I think, corrected her and said I didn't think that was a new hobby. During the week, she didn't seem to spend much time with her plants. A new hobby to me was more shopping for indoor plants. <laughs> and over those first couple of months, we lost a few good plants. But we started to learn something of the conditions required for plants to flourish. There's all these things that I didn't know existed. We, we've now owned a temperature gauge that you push in soil that tells you how much moisture there is there. I didn't know such a thing existed. 
there's this bulb of water that you put in the plant that slowly releases it over the course of the week so you don't rot the roots, but that it also doesn't dry out. Depending what day of the week you come round to our house, indoor plants will be in a different room because apparently there's a difference between morning sun and evening sun. I'm told there's certain times I need to have the blinds up and down because that apparently influences things as well. I know people often tell me it's exhausting having a kid, but we've got 10 pot plants and it's already doing my head in. <laughs> but in creating the conditions, life flourishes. And the interesting thing is the plant actually doesn't do any of the work to flourish. Jesus creates the conditions for us, and all he asks for us to do is participate in our calling. Throughout the 10 verses, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 8, Jesus... Jesus continually implores us to listen. And it's not in a legalistic manner. He doesn't tell us we have to listen so many times a day. He doesn't put expectations in the way that we listen. But those verses that implore us to listen finish in the promise of verse 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. With this focus on listening, I've been considering the topic myself the last few days. And the conclusion I've come to is that it's not something I'm good at. Last year we did a series on the senses and we had a talk on, on listening. I remember feeling incredibly inspired. I was going to do away with all the distractions in my life. And I did that for a week or two. And they slowly drifted back in. The fact is... When I get in the car, I put on a podcast. When I go for a run in the park, I listen to music. When I'm home alone, I put on a TV show. When I'm doing the chores, I'll have headphones that I can listen to something through. And none of these are bad things in isolation. But when I look at my day, I realise whenever there's a chance to listen, I fill it with distractions. But more so than just in my day, it can invade my spiritual disciplines. When I read the Bible, often I'm looking for something I can apply to my own life. A nice verse that I can try and learn by heart to, to impress people. I don't really do well at just sitting in a text and listening to what it has to say. My prayer life is often best described as a shopping list. I had an exam during the week and I realised my prayer life could not be better than around exam time. Every time I have an exam coming up, I'll have a week or two where I focus on prayer really well. But it's because I have something I have that I want God to focus on. I don't often just sit in prayer to listen to what God's calling is for me, for the community around me. One of the things I often get most frustrated in in life is, and I know most of us might have had this experience, is when you're in an argument and you present your side, the thing that's really got you down, the thing that's hurt you, and you present the heart of the issue, in that moment you're incredibly vulnerable. But there's nothing more, more frustrating when the person replies and you realise they weren't listening to the heart of what you said. And I've been the guilty party in that. 
where I've used when someone's outlined something that they're struggling with with me, and I've used that time to formulate my response rather than listen to the heart of what is going on. The more I sit and think about it, the more I've realised this is what our relationship with King Jesus can often be like. Our life with him can become about presenting our own concerns rather than listening to his call for the world. We hear in in this parable his mission. He's a loving God who wants nothing more than for us to have life and have it to the full. I think most of us know that life to the full isn't a prosperity gospel. Jesus wasn't having a discussion with the Pharisees about what their next BMW would look like. And I've been trying to think, what does life to the full look like? And I'm drawn to the picture of these plants again. I said at the start, when I look at these plants, something just screams life. I don't have to think my way there. When we're participating in life to the full, I think that's what people should look look at us and say. There's something about them where I see life. The way to abundant life, the one thing we're called to do is to listen. To create a posture of listening. Jesus has done the rest for us. We often finish our message, our time together, with a time of prayer. And we're going to do so today, but in a slightly different way. What I want you to do is just spend a a moment considering something that's been on your heart lately. It might be for yourself, for a loved one, for one you're hoping can come to know God. It might be for something happening in the world. And what I want you to do is boil down the heart of the issue for yourself into one sentence. But then going to go into a couple of minutes of, of just silence. I just want you to say that sentence to God, whether that's in your head or out loud. And then just to sit and listen. We're not doing this with an expectation that we're all going to have some amazing audible God moment. We're doing it because we're called to be listeners. We're called to create a posture of listening to the one that calls us to life to put aside distractions, if only for a moment. So we'll go into that couple of minutes now and we'll come back in a time of worship together.